Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I am joined by George Beebe, the Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for the National Interest, uh, former head of Russia analysis at the Central Intelligence Agency, and author of the new book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Uh, If the title alone doesn't have you hooked already, uh, hopefully our conversation will get you there. Let's get started. Joining me in the studio today is George Beebe from the Center for the National Interest. Uh, His new book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. George, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So that's a pretty alarming title uh, for a book. Are we headed for nuclear catastrophe? Well, it's a deliberately alarming title. (laughs) And the reason why it is, is I'm actually alarmed by the situation that I think we are facing right now. I wrote this book as what I call a pre-mortem, meaning uh, we are doing an examination of a failure that has not yet happened, but very well might. A failure to keep the peace. A failure to keep the peace. And uh, I undertook this study to uh, allow us to peer into a potential future disaster that I think is a lot more realistic than most people believe. Um, And in so doing, take some steps that I think can minimize the likelihood of that disastrous outcome. Okay, we'll get to the steps in a bit. But uh, one of the things you do is compare 1939 to 1914, which as a historian is is something I very much appreciate. Uh Um, And you're making the case that we have been thinking about Russia as though it's 1939, when in reality, maybe it's more like 1914. Yes. I think in reality, it's probably more like 1904, mm-hmm. um, in that we're not as close to disaster as, you know, it's it's not next week or next month in right. all we, likelihood. And we don't have any archdukes. Uh, right. Uh, Slava Bogo. Uh, <laughs> But yes, I'm using those two historical references as a shorthand for comparing two schools of thought in international relations theory that uh, Bob Jervis uh, labeled the the deterrence model and the spiral model. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Washington uh, for quite some time now has been fixated on looking at the Russian threat as a deterrence problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as I point out in the book, um, this is bipartisan, widespread, uh, both both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. Certainly now, it may not have been six or seven years ago, but I think at yes. least since 2016. That's right. Become... At least since 2016, uh, we're we're seeing unanimity. I think in our appraisals of the Russian threat, and unanimity in our beliefs about how we deal with this most effectively. And I think. Um, the, the belief here is that the danger is that we're not going to be tough enough on the Russians. Um, the, the real fear that a lot of people have these days is that we might try to accommodate. We might try to bargain. We might try to strike a deal, which uh, when you uh, extrapolate from that 1939 model, that would only encourage greater Russian aggression. It would only encourage them to believe that we're, we're not resolute, we've gone soft, we're not going to stand up to their uh, expansionist ambitions, and we would only court 
the the danger rather than thwart the danger under those circumstances. Right. If there's a, a lesson from 1939 that has been learned, and I would argue overlearned, uh, it's that you don't appease. Exactly. And you you don't appease uh, aggressors because aggressors are insatiable, and once you start going down that path, they're not going to stop until they get to right wherever it is they're going. Right. To uh, mm-hmm. to paraphrase Churchill, if you uh, try to feed the crocodile, you'll wind up being its next meal. Yeah. Um, and your argument is that that's not an accurate depiction of Russian strategic objectives. Right. I think it's a misunderstanding of what we've got. And what you see is an, an awful lot of explicit references to Munich, to appeasement, to looking at Russia like Nazi Germany, to looking at Putin like Adolf Hitler, to warning against... Uh, what was the, the term used? Putler? <laughs> Putler, right, right. <laughs> uh, and this actually distorts our understanding of what the Russian threat actually is. Um, and it actually impairs our ability to def- deal effectively with it. Now, I, I point out in the book that there's another much smaller much less popular school of thought that looks at Russia as largely playing defense against the United States and NATO. Mm-hmm. This and is the Stephen Cohen. Yeah, Stephen Cohen, I think, and John Mearsheimer have been the most notable uh, proponents of, of this view. And this is one in which uh, people look at Russia and say, well, you know, if you, if you look at the map from 1989 to present, uh, there is a very stark trend that's evident, and that is more and more countries joining NATO, coming coming ever closer to Russia's borders, treading into what was once the, the Soviet Union itself. And um, the argument there is that any great power would find that alarming and would react to that. And Russia's reaction is surprising, not in that it occurred, but that it occurred as late in the game as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, And you combine that with uh, what I think everyone acknowledges was quite extensive American involvement in Russia's own internal politics for quite some time. And the defensive school says, hey, you know, this is not aggression. This is reaction. They're reacting out of fear and insecurity. And the worst thing you can do when you're dealing with a great power that feels as if it's cornered. Uh, is to be aggressive, resolute, and and continue to wield that stick. Right. And while there may be some truth to that, I think it's also problematic in some ways because I think as people who've been critical of of folks like Cohen and and Mearsheimer would point out is that the people in these places in between have a voice in all of this too. And they may have good reasons for wanting to join NATO or wanting to join the EU. Absolutely. And it's not Russia's affair to to impinge on their sovereignty by telling them they can't. Absolutely. Right. So what I argue in the book in juxtaposing these two schools of thought is that the reality of the threat that we're facing right now really is a combination of both of these schools of thought. And uh, what I use in the book is what I call a a complex systems theory approach. Um, And I shorthand that as the World War I model. Mm -hmm. But it's basically one in which a variety of different factors, uh, technological, domestic, political, geopolitical, and structural and you know, at the level of individual leaders are combining 
in ways that can produce unexpected discontinuous outcomes, that we, we have not so much an offensive Russia problem or a defensive Russia problem as we do a complex systems problem. Mm-hmm. A nonlinear. A nonlinear problem. problem. And I, uh, I suggest in the book that this has been something that has continually caused us surprises in the world, mm-hmm. dating back for, for many decades. But you, know, you look at the 2008 financial crisis and you can see its roots in complex systems dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a certain American solipsism sometimes that we assume that everything that happens in the world is about us or that uh-huh. steps that we take have a direct impact on things anywhere and everywhere in the world. That We have the ability to control them. Um, and while the U.S. has a lot of influence, I think the point that that influence doesn't always act in a direct way, um, that it's refracted through different uh, factors and and different places in in different ways, uh, is important. And also that other countries and other regions, other systems have their own dynamic that may be more or less impervious to anything that we do. Right. Exactly. And I, I think this belief that there's a direct linear relationship between our intentions and policies on the one hand and the outcomes that we seek on the other hand is, is a mistake. Um, and when you're talking about dealing with a country that has the capacity to destroy the United States you know, in minutes, many mm-hmm. times over. A few times over. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, You've got to be cautious. You, you need to ask yourself, how might this work out in ways that are counterintuitive, you know, unexpected, discontinuous, and uh, really uh, nobody would want? You know, neither Moscow nor the United States, I think, wants to go to war with one another. That's um, a fair assumption. And, and be- because of that, I think we sometimes look at this at the popular level and say it would be suicidal for anybody to start a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. We all realize what a disaster right. that would be. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the fear that this would happen is is really so, you know, 1960s. We've been there, we've done that. That's a, a chapter in our history that is over. We don't really have to be concerned about that anymore because everyone realizes it would be nuts to do that. Yeah. Therefore, it won't happen. Right. And if you go back to the 1914 analogy, you could make the same argument. Right? Exactly that right. Everybody knew that a pan-European war would be suicidal. In fact, there was the the famous uh, Norman Angel book that came out in right. 1910 that said as much um, exactly and therefore right. predicted that the it, war wouldn't happen. It's not had a good shelf life, has it? <laughs> no, well, I mean, he was right. You know, He said that the level of interdependence that Europe had achieved by 1910 meant that it would be absolutely suicidal for the European great powers to go to war. Right. His conclusion that therefore it won't happen, however, was badly mistaken. Yes. Yes. Um, And I think that gets to the problem here. Uh, And another related problem, again, to talk about world wars, is that the historical memory of them is fading. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think part of the reason we can't imagine some of these outcomes is because the people who lived through the last iteration of global conflict are certainly not in charge anymore and most of them aren't alive anymore. Um, And that was another thing that happened in 1914, right? The people who remembered the Napoleonic War were gone. Um, And so even as we have these discussions on an abstract and intellectual level, the kind of visceral understanding of what that means 
isn't with us the way that it, it might have been a generation ago. No, that's exactly right. And I think another thing that's happened is uh, we're to some degree victims of our success in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the American perspective, we won the Cold War. Yeah. Our, our system was proved in the, the battlefield of ideas superior. And therefore, two things. One, we don't believe that we have to fear going through another Cold War because- you know, Or if we do, it's going to be with China. Well, sure. But the verdict has already been rendered from history. Um, and number two, the end of that Cold War was peaceful. Mm-hmm. Right. There was, there was no nuclear war. There was no giant apocalyptic confrontation. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we can uh, prosecute this new great power competition with Russia as well as with China without great fear that this is going to spin into disaster. Yeah, right. You, you know, they say you're always fighting the last war. Um, and in this case, if you consider the Cold War a war, it succeeded, I think, from the American perspective, almost beyond the expectations of anybody who was alive during it. Um, and the assumption that history will repeat itself in that way, I, I, I agree, sets out some dangerous expectations. Right. Right. So what, what I try to do in this book is to lay out what those complex system dynamics look like mm-hmm. under current circumstances. What's going on? Right. So how a particular input on the part of the United States will be translated into an output at the systemic level. Exactly. And one of the things that I think is most disturbing is in the, the cyber domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, because here I think the, the Munich analogy has served us very poorly. Mm-hmm. We're in, engaged right now in, I wouldn't necessarily call it a genuine cyber war, but it's, it's certainly beyond a cold war, even though it's not in the kinetic realm. Right. It's, and I call it a shadow zone. war. Yeah, I call <laughs> it a shadow war, but there is an awful lot going on, mm-hmm. only some of which the public sees. And uh, it's a situation which the dynamics are much different from the nuclear domain, the conventional military domain, or other aspects of the competition that occurred between the United States and Soviet Union. In what ways? Well, deterrence doesn't work the same way in the cyber domain that it does in the nuclear domain, certainly. What happened during the Cold War is we each realized that the other side had the capacity to destroy us and that there was very little that we could do to thwart that. By 1962, it took us the Cuban Missile Crisis to get there, but yes. That's right. And as a result, we settled into this concept of mutually assured destruction, which actually had a stabilizing effect. And we ensured that that would be the case by essentially outlawing uh, defensive systems, uh, ballistic missile defense systems. Mm -hmm. And making sure we would have survivable second strike systems and And, everything else. And this minimized the incentives to uh, launch a first strike, and it it contributed to strategic stability. And both sides had a shared concept of that strategic Mm -hmm. stability. In the cyber domain, we've got a situation in which these new cyber tools can do enormous damage. Uh, damage that I think most people uh, underappreciate. Mm. I think I think there's a debate about this. Is one of the problems in my view with figuring out what do you do about cyber competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
because there's a range of views about how dangerous cyber tools are. That's I mean, right. if the worst thing that happens is the Chinese government steals the personal identifying information of everybody who's applied for a job with the U.S. government, that's bad. It's not a causus belli. That's right. That's bad, but it's not the kind of thing that you're going to go home and worry about. Um, it's not existential. I would argue, though, that uh, yes, th we are still early in our understanding of the cyber domain, uh, what the capabilities are, what the threats are, how do we understand the dynamics within this domain. Uh, in many ways, I think it's a, a period of time that's analogous to the 1950s when it comes to nuclear weaponry. Uh, we realized that there was uh, enormous potential. We realized that the destructive potential was, was quite concerning. But uh, the marrying of this technology to strategy and to statecraft was still very early. We were thinking all this through. This was you know, the, the era of Henry Kissinger and Herman Kahn and Thomas Schelling. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, we came to grips with all of this and we figured out how to, how to deal with it. We're not there by a long shot with cyber technology yet. Right. And it's more complicated, too, because one, and you talk about this in the, in the book, the question of attribution is much harder. Yep. Um, and moreover, there are lots of actors who could be responsible for any kind of activity in the cyber domain. Right. If somebody dropped a nuclear bomb on Chicago in the 1950s, you you're pretty sure where yeah, it came exactly. from. And that's not the case with cyber technology, although we are getting better at attribution. It's uh, in part art and, and in part science. Mm -hmm. um, one of the problems with cyber technology is intentions. And in the book, I, uh, I talk about the, the ambiguities that are involved in this. Let's say you get lucky and you detect someone intruding into your system. Um, and it can take a while sometimes. You know, we're getting better at detecting intrusions, but, you know, sometimes it can take years before you figure out somebody's in your system. But you get lucky, you find out they're in there. The next question is, what are who they trying it? to do? Well, who is it? But also, what are they trying to do? Yeah. Um, it's one thing to steal data espionage. But when you're in somebody's system, you can not only steal data, you can also corrupt that data. Yeah. You can also damage the system. You, you can sabotage things. Well, and as we learned with the 2016 election, you can also take the data that you've stolen and use it in ways that are designed purposes. to... Yeah. Exactly right. right. And uh, it is not evident until sometimes even after the fact as to what the intruder is intending to do. Mm -hmm. And because all of this is so fluid, there's a blurring of what you might call you know, espionage, traditional spycraft, mm -hmm. and warfare. And on top of that, old-fashioned propaganda and, and influence operations. And this blending together actually makes things more difficult to deal with, um, more difficult from a policy point of view to handle. And it also means that the chances that all of this will spiral go up. Um, and in the book, I point out uh, one of the big dangers we've got right now is uh, what James Acton over at, uh, at Carnegie has called nuclear entanglement. Mm. You know, decades ago, there was a clear delineation between conventional weaponry and nuclear weaponry. 
Um, nuclear command and control systems, for example, were distinct from the conventional world. Um, those things, again, have started blurring together. Mm. And there was a big difference in terms of the effects between being hit by a conventional and a nuclear That's strike, right. That's right. which meant that you could delineate between the two and say exactly. nuclear actions need to be regulated because they're so dangerous. Right. Now, that's no longer the case anymore. So we're now in danger of being in a, a, a situation where, let's say there's a crisis over some sort of regional issue, mm -hmm. uh, Iran, the Straits of Hormuz, for example. Ukraine. Ukraine. Not hard to identify any number of potential places where some sparks could fly. And the United States, for example, decides to deploy some uh, tomahawk-armed ships mm -hmm. in the region. The Russians might themselves have some of their forces in the region, and they're legitimately worried about potential targeting. Now, one of the things that's happening in espionage right now is increasingly to find out what the other side is doing, you're relying on cyber penetrations to try to get into these systems to figure out what's going on. So the Russians, under the circumstances, feel like they need to understand what the U.S. might be preparing that could threaten them. They penetrate a system. We detect it. Mm -hmm. Like a nuclear command and control system. Exactly. But that nuclear command and control system also is connected to the Tomahawks. So we detect it. Now the, now the people that have detected it say, well, Mr. President, we have a situation here. We have what we think are Russians mm -hmm. in our command and control system. We don't know what their intentions are, but we can't rule out that they mean to disable your ability to order a mm -hmm. nuclear retaliatory strike. And that's an unacceptable situation. Mm -hmm. we, we can't put the United States mm -hmm. in that situation. What do we do? Th that's a, you know, not an unthinkable situation under current circumstances. And it would occur in a situation where uh, our communications between the United States and Russia are greatly atrophied. Which relative they to are the, right now. Exactly. We have nowhere near the kinds of channels of communication mm -hmm. that we did in the Cold War, yeah. which is ironic. Right. Well, and I think it's worse than that in some ways because it almost seems like the political imperative on both sides, but particularly here, is to further reduce those channels. Exactly right. Because communication itself is viewed as a reward for good behavior. Well, it's almost than appeasement. A, yeah. <laughs> rather than as a tool for right. understanding what the other guy is up to and communicating a message. Right. You don't talk to the other side. He's an aggressive bully. He's mm -hmm. bent on expansion. He's actually yeah. bent on your destruction, right. which is one of the chapters in the book. Mm -hmm. This is the 1939 analogy. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, what's the point of negotiating with Hitler? It's, it's not just what's the point. It's actually harmful to do so, mm -hmm. according to that perspective. So uh, in addition to the cyber problem, one of the things that I, I write about in the book is, is a perception problem. Um, and this is something that has been accumulating over a long period of time. But I think we've reached the point now where both Russia and the United States are convinced that the other side isn't just a competitor, but it actually wants to destroy the other side. Mm -hmm. Now, the Russians have thought this for quite some time, that we're uh, attempting to encircle them with hostile puppet regimes and ultimately to overthrow mm -hmm. their yeah. government. To bite off a juicy chunk, as, as it, Putin put it back in 2002. That's right. And Putin's not the only one that believes this. I think this is a, a very widespread, widespread view. Now, the United States has been slow uh, to come to this same conclusion, but I think the 2016 Russian election interference really catapulted us over 
uh, a significant hurdle on this to the point where everybody, <laughs> with very few exceptions, is convinced that R Russia wants to destroy democracy in the United States. And, and uh, we're convinced that this is not through military con conquest. It's not through launching nuclear weapons. It's basically by dividing us from within, uh, exacerbating fissures within our society, but in so doing to bring about the country's demise. Yeah, which again was a thing that the Soviets did. Yes. Uh, and as you point out, we didn't, leaving aside maybe the McCarthy era, treat it as an existential threat. No, this was something that was, uh, I think, annoying, uh, something that we objected strongly to, but we didn't panic. Uh, again, with perhaps the notable exception of the McCarthy era. But today, I think we're, we're convinced that the Russians are out to get us. Uh, and, uh, former director of national intelligence, uh, Jim Clapper, I think, had a, a very pithy soundbite on this regard. He said, uh, the Russians are in to do us in. <laughs> and he even attributed this to what do you call the a, a, genetic predilection mm. to undermine, to uh -huh. co-opt and divide. <laughs> Great. Well, if that's the case, there isn't much we can do about it. <laughs> right. Well, exactly right, which again mm. reinforces mm. this Munich mm -hmm. perspective. Well, but also a sense of fatalism. Sure. Right. Uh, why bargain with somebody who is genetically yeah. predisposed to do this and is never going to change? Um, we, all you can do in that particular case is to defeat them. It's, you know, you can't strike compromises. Mm -hmm. There's no win-win solution in that sort of approach. Yeah. And we've been talking about what this looks like on the American side, but you could make a similar case in a lot of ways about how things are viewed in Russia. Absolutely. Um, again, a lot of Russians have been of the opinion that we've been in to do them in for a long time. Right. Uh, and the, uh, Russian understandings of things like the color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine, um, the conflict in Ukraine, the protest movement in Russia. Um, part of the reasons that Russia's reacted as strongly to all of these as it has is because of the perception that it's part of a U.S. strategy to do them in. Absolutely right. Yes. And not only do the Russians think that we're in to do them in, they think that they can't actually survive unless they're a great power. Yeah. That Russia geographically, historically, culturally can't actually s continue to exist as, as an entity mm -hmm. unless it is a great power. Um, and that, you know... To some degree here, there is a genuine conflict of American and Russian in, uh, interests. Yeah. And again, I think this comes back to what we were talking about before, about the question of the states in between. Right. Um, our view is that these are independent states. They have the right, the same as any other country, to choose their own fate. Yes. Um, and if Russia doesn't like it, that's not Russia's issue because these are not Russian possessions. Mm -hmm. um, and the view in Moscow is yes, but uh -huh. uh, that these are intrinsic to our security and ability to act as a great power. Um, and that therefore we do have a, an interest and a say in, in what happens to them. And if they do things that are perceived as hostile to our security or standing as a great power, we're going to react to the extent that we can. No, that's right. And to some degree what we're seeing here is a contrast in visions of world order. Exactly. 
Um, coming out of the Cold War, the United States had a vision for what stability in the world should be based on. Right. And this much lamented liberal international order. Right. Um, and it was uh, what we called a rules-based order uh, in which everyone would agree on principles and rules that would apply. Uh, and those uh, principles and rules would ensure stability. And the more states that bought into this, the more stability there would be in the world. Now, the Russian perspective on this was, uh, A, they never actually bought into that vision. Yeah, or they bought into a particular vision, which we then sabotaged. Sure. Well, I think the, the Russians also felt that uh, if there was going to be a rules-based order with agreed principles, they needed to be one of those states that helped to establish yeah. what those principles and rules were. Um, rather than being the object of mm -hmm. those rules, they ought to be the subject of the yes. rule making along with the United States and some others. Right. Um, and I think you sometimes – to talk about dates as symbolic totems again, um, you sometimes hear the discussion about the difference between the systems or the, the rules of 1989 versus 1991. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because when the Soviet Union was still around, Gorbachev was negotiating with the United States about new rules of the game. Right. Um, and that was when we were building up the OSCE. Um, we were talking about a, a common European home. Uh, we had the, the CFE treaty and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And the Russian argument today is that the U.S. then reneged on what it had agreed to in 1989 and went about creating a new set of rules that included one set of principles for U.S. friends and allies and another set for everybody else, including Russia, and sure. that allowed things like NATO expansion and democracy promotion and, and everything else. Right. No, that's right. I think the Russians essentially said, you know, if the rules are going to apply, they're going to have to apply to the United States as well as us. And they have a long list of U.S. violations of the rules that mm -hmm. I think they carry in one of their pockets wherever they yeah. go. Well, they're not, the, they're not the only ones. <laughs> sure. Um, I think the second point that they make is that uh, the United States actually is not facing up to a, a reality of power politics in the mm -hmm. world. And right. that is, you know, if, for example, Mexico were to enter into some sort of military agreement with China mm -hmm. that would involve, or Russia. or Russia, that would involve, you know, basing uh, military forces on mm -hmm. Mexican territory. Yeah. Uh, the United States would not simply say, well, that's Mexico's sovereign right mm -hmm. as, a, as an independent sovereign state to make that choice for itself. Um, they, their, their point, and I agree with them on this, is that the United States would say, sorry, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's threatening to American interests. And when it comes to a clash between your sovereign decisions and our national security interests, we win. We're going to do something. Exactly about it. right. Yeah. Well, and there's another way in which the, the power element is relevant here, and that is that the United States looks to the, the 1991 settlement as basis for creating world order because that was the moment of maximum U.S. power relative right. to Russia, China, and others. Uh, and so we quite like what emerged in 1991. Right. Um, and the Russian argument is, well, it's a different world now because the power dynamics are different. That's right. Today's Russia is not the Russia of 1991. That's clearly the case. And I think you know, we have for, for many years indicated that it's uh, unacceptable for Russia to have a veto over NATO enlargement. 
but I think what we've seen in practice they do. Uh, in Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine in 2014 is they have a practical veto, yeah. even if they might not have one on paper. Uh, and they're uh, convinced that they can and will exercise that veto. And that's a, a reality that I think we have yet to fully uh, understand and accept. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a domestic political component to that too. Uh -huh. uh, we were talking about this earlier. There's no benefit politically for anybody on the left or the right in the United States to say, you know what, we need to be more solicitous of Russian interests. In fact, Russia does have a veto over NATO expansion. In fact, Russia does get to have a, a sphere of influence around its borders. Uh, we do need to negotiate away some of our uh, flexibility um, in terms of, of cyber or nuclear or other technologies because of Russia's ability to respond. That's not a political argument you want to have. No, and I think when you phrase it that way, you're almost guaranteeing that no one is going to adopt that. Right. Uh, it will be suicidal politically. What I do think we need to do, though, is to step back and recognize the dangers that are lying out there on the course that we're currently on and, and imagine where this might go. And if we do that, I think you can then start to say, what do we need to do to minimize the likelihood of some of those potentially catastrophic outcomes? Yeah, I was about to get to the yeah, Stodielic. Exactly. This. Um, can we manage this competition? in ways that don't turn Russia into a partner or an ally, which mm -hmm. I think is at this point not uh, a near-term prospect at all uh, and would probably be counterproductive under the circumstances, um, but manages this competition um, so that both sides can compete but mm -hmm. can do so within relatively safe bounds. I think the other thing we need to understand is... Well, I was going to say, yep. how do we do that? Well, how do we do that? Well, I think step one is to say we need to have some rules of the game in place. We've entered into a competition here that is potentially quite deadly without realizing how deadly it might be. Yeah. Without one. realizing that we may be in that kind of a competition. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Uh, we're doing so without any of the old rules. Mm -hmm. um, we've actually done quite a impressive, though unintentional, job of dismantling those old rules. Um, well, some of them, I think, were intended. <laughs> some of them were intended, that's right. But, uh, you know, if you go back to the late 1990s, uh, the CFE Treaty, uh, we attempted to adapt that to new conditions that would uh, accommodate uh, NATO's changing composition. We adapted the CFE Treaty. But uh, it never came into force for a complex set of reasons. Mm -hmm. The ABM treaty we withdrew from. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lost uh, INF in the last year, and it sure looks like the New START treaty is on a similar trajectory right now, although its fate has not yet been firmly decided. Um, I think Las Vegas would not put the odds <laughs> as very great that it's going to survive. Yeah. Well, I think the odds will turn heavily on the, the 2020 presidential election. I think that's right. That's right. And those are just the old rules that mm -hmm. constrain the old game. Yeah. Uh, but we've got new tools, mm -hmm. uh, new forms of this competition that even those old institutions, treaties, and agreements didn't account for. Sure. 
Um, we haven't figured out how to regulate cyber competition. No, we have not. Uh, and we haven't figured out how to deal with new strategic weapons delivery systems that, that make uh, conventional forces strategic yeah. in ways that they weren't before, yes. that also greatly complicate things like warning. Uh, they reduce warning times mm -hmm. within which you have to make launch decisions. Um, and they, they make things a lot more uncertain and a lot more ambiguous than mm -hmm. they used to. And we don't yet have much of a clue as to how to deal with those things. And moreover, we're not even talking about it. Yeah. And we also haven't figured out how to do this in a multilateral context. Um, because when you're talking about strategic nuclear weapons, you can still have that conversation bilaterally with Moscow. Right. But with a lot of these other systems, negotiating a bilateral deal is going to be very hard if there are third powers that have those capabilities that either don't want to give them up or are not going to be included in, in any deal. Right. Yes. So you know, these are formidable problems. But I think the recognition that they're real problems that constitute real threats that we need to manage is step mm -hmm. one in mm -hmm. all of this. The first and, step is recognizing you have a problem. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I, I think recognizing as well that uh, – we're going to have to think about our own internal dynamics and in all of this is a critical part of this. And one of the things I point out in the book is part of the reason why our views of Russia and our perceptions of the threat that Russia poses to us have changed and, and moved into what I would call the red zone of alarm um, is not so much because of what Russia is doing, although Russia is certainly an important a contributor to the problem, it's uh, a result of what's going on inside this country. Mm. Um, and to a great degree, we are projecting our own insecurities and fears and problems mm -hmm. onto our images of Russia and our perceptions of that right. threat. We're looking for Russians under the bed when we have political fragility or right. whatever it is in this country right. instead of addressing the root causes. Exactly. And those root causes are actually themselves very difficult problems to deal with. Yeah. But understanding that our, our own domestic situation is entangled mm -hmm. in the problems that we're having in Russia is important. Yeah, I think that's right. Both because it entangles the question of what do you do about Russia into our own partisan politics. Right. But also because it makes it more difficult for us to address some of those domestic problems because we are too busy trying to blame Russia for exactly them. Exactly right. It, it, and to some degree, it can be an excuse. Yeah. You know, we don't have to deal with these problems because the Russians are really mm -hmm. what's behind Right. Us. Once we fix the Russia problem, racial tension in the United States <laughs> will go away. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So one of the other things that I think we need to do in addition to looking at new rules of the game and, you know, taking a look in the mirror is to... Uh, put what I call shock absorbers into the system. And the word that uh, is bandied about in this regard is resilience. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a, a complex systems problem that can produce you know, sudden discontinuous crises of, of various kinds, uh, you want your system to be resilient enough to withstand the impact of that without collapsing. And in this regard, you don't want to seek stability so much. You know, you're not trying to freeze in place the status quo. You want a system that can bend enough, that it, that it can sway with the breezes or, or withstand the shocks mm -hmm. of an earthquake and still remain standing. So how do we do that? I think we need to, to put redundancy into systems, for example. If we've got 
satellites that are you know, highly vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, entangled, for example, between nuclear and conventional command and control, and uh, single points of failure, which I think is a, an accurate depiction of the situation we have right now, we need to put uh, redundant systems up in place so yeah. that That's we a very lose... systems engineering way of thinking about Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and we need to disentangle some of these things to the degree that we can. Uh, so that if there is a, a failure in one place, it doesn't take the whole thing down. Right. Um, and it also disincentivizes attacks on that system from the other side. Because you know that, to put it in Cold War terms, you'll still have a second strike capability. Exactly right. I think the same thing applies in electoral systems. We need backups. Mm-hmm. We need redundancy. Paper ballots. Exactly. So what that does is it disincentivizes attacks on electoral systems themselves on the one hand, but also means we're going to be less fearful because we know that if one is taken out, we've got a backup that we can rely on and, mm-hmm. and nobody's going to sit there after an election and say, sorry, these results are so tainted that right, the that election is Ill- illegitimate. Exactly. Um, and I think this is true in a lot of different areas, but I think we, we actually have to approach this in a different way. Our critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's, again, we've not grown up in a world, most of us anyways, in which this critical infrastructure was actually vulnerable. You know, short of a nuclear attack, the yeah. Russians are not going to be able to destroy, you know, water treatment plants mm-hmm. and our power Hoover plants Dam and Hoover Dam and all of that stuff. Be, yeah. Right. That's not the case anymore. You know, all of those systems mm-hmm. are now vulnerable. Right. And again, profoundly vulnerable. Yeah. Well, and again, and it's not just about Russia. Right. right. I mean, you can envision not. a conflict even with a country like Iran, uh, where some of these systems would come under kinetic or cyber or other kinds of attack. Exactly. Right. Not to mention the homegrown right. threat to them. Exactly right. So th- this is something that we need to give very serious thought to. And in some cases, it means devoting some very serious money to. Uh, yeah. But under the circumstances, I don't think there's an alternative that, that looks very appealing. Mm-hmm. Well, so what do you assess the prospects of our political system being able to, to deliver on that? Well, I think anybody that's optimistic about prospects for our political system right now is uh, perhaps a, a little on the Pollyannish side, mm-hmm. <laughs> realistically. You might have a bridge to sell you. <laughs> yes, or? right. That said, I'm somewhat encouraged by the reaction uh, popularly here to the demise of the INF Treaty. Mm. I think what you're starting to see is people on both sides of the aisle stepping back and saying, wait a minute now, (laughs) you know, maybe the INF Treaty and its particulars are a bit anachronistic under the current circumstances. But there were elements to this, like you know, on-site inspections and and the framework for regular consultations and communications between the sides that are gone, but were var- var- valuable yeah. and and are necessary. Would have been nice to have that conversation before the treaty went away. <laughs> right, it would have been, but. You're seeing a reaction now. You're seeing, for example, Sam Nunn uh, in the recent uh, Foreign Affairs uh, edition talking about the return of doomsday and the the need to address this situation. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a reaction which suggests to me that the window of opportunity for stepping back and saying we need to figure out how to manage this situation is not entirely closed. That's good. So if we're actually in a situation analogous to 1904, maybe we have a decade or so to figure this stuff out. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I hope to. (laughs) Yes. 
Thanks again for joining us. Uh, you can find a link to George's bio in the show notes uh, and also a link to his book, which will be available at your local bookstore beginning in September. As always, if you haven't, uh, please consider subscribing on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and or subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, and also, uh, please continue sending us mailbag questions. Uh, you can send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, and also, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia. You can follow me at Dr. J. Mankov. And of course, finally, last but not least, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks, including producer, research associate, and program manager Roxana Gabidulina and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.